Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Paul, I got to say, I'm looking forward to the time when economic data releases are less emotional, when you don't sort of feel this sort of stunning shock every time you see a new unemployment print. I got to say, yes, the jobless claims came in uh, less terrible than people had expected. 5.2 million people yeah. lost their jobs. And, and and we're just seeing one statistic after another defy any historical precedent. And it raises a question, with an economy in free fall, how quickly will it take to climb out of this hole? And joining us is someone who's been tracking this for decades and who has a good sense of what perhaps is the historical precedent or lack thereof, Carl Weinberg, I'm so glad to say, founder and chief international economist of high frequency economics, uh, joining us now. Carl, when you take a look at these jobless claims, What's your sense of how many of them can actually come back once the economy starts to restart and we do see a sign of a plateauing of the pandemic? Hi, Lisa. Good morning on this grim day for data. Um, The answer to your question is simple. I don't know. And um, you're going to get that answer a lot from me today. Uh, In order to be able to forecast the future, I think we have to have at least three basic facts that we do know, none of which are evident right now. How long is this going to go on, this lockdown? Number two, how low will the economy fall? What will be the bottom for GDP growth and uh, for uh, the peak for unemployment? And number three, how many firms are going to not make it through all of this and not come back? Because that will give us the starting level of the unemployment rate when we come back. If uh, 10% of the firms that uh, that are out there don't come back, then 10% of the jobs will be lost. We'll be starting with an unemployment rate uh, in the double digits and that will gauge uh, how long we come back, how long it takes us to get back. So, Carl, give us a sense of how critical it is for this, the folks down in Washington in, in, uh, in Congress to really be consistent and aggressive with fiscal stimulus. We just heard today that small business part of the initial fiscal stimulus, that has been exhausted as of today, um, really putting pressure on Congress to act once again. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's critical. I wouldn't call it fiscal stimulus, Paul. I would give it a different name. I would call it bridge financing. Yeah. You know, what we're really doing here is we're taking companies that have an unsurvivable hit to their cash flows, and we're letting them finance that hit over an affordable period time of time. It's, it's the oldest trick in banking. It's restructuring. We're restructuring the pain. So I would say that, this, that we have to get bridge financing in the hands of companies that need it ASAP, because once they fold and the jobs are lost, then no matter when we unlock down, we're still going to be at a very, very, we're not going to be able to put these people back to work. So based on what we've seen in China, some people are saying the economy can restart uh, in, in, in a fairly robust manner, just looking at copper demand and other gauges out of China. Do you glean the same kind of optimistic signs based on what we're seeing? Well, you know, I'm cautioning our high-frequency economics readers not to use China as a blueprint for what to expect here. And the reason is is that their rather draconian lockdown probably, I'm going to say probably, contained the virus to one province. And even though it was a big province, it's only 5% of the economy. 
So they never locked down the entire economy as we did. So the pain is felt in a, in a smaller portion of it. Sure, the, the supply chains were interlinked, but we didn't see companies failing uh, around the, 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 the nation. Now, uh, everybody's going to say, though, China is lying, they're not reporting the numbers, blah, blah, blah. All right. But if we had seen a national shutdown there rather than just a provincial shutdown there, there's no way to cover that up. All right. China's definitely been hit, but I think they were nicked a lot less than we're being nicked over than we're being hit over here. And Carl, I think the initially there was hope. I think I'm going to use the word hope as opposed to anything else for a V-shaped recovery here. But it just seems if we're going to get some of the numbers that people are talking about, i.e., 30 to 40 percent decline in second quarter GDP, you know, kind of 20 percent plus uh, unemployment, that type of shock to the system suggests that that may cause some real structural longer-term damage. How are you kind of thinking about those aspects? I think people who see the solution as a V-shaped recovery defined in terms of growth have to rethink their arithmetic starting from day one. You know, the rate of growth of GDP is irrelevant to how we're going to come back. The unemployment rate is linked, or the, <clears throat> the, number of, the, the level of employment is linked to the level of economic activity. So if we go down 30% right, in terms of level, Right, and then we come back to the same 2% GDP growth rate that we had before, then, yes, we will have a V-shaped recovery in terms of growth, but we'll be starting with 25% fewer jobs in the economy, and it's going to take a really long time to come back from that. The, the V-shape in terms of growth is a nice thing to think about. It makes us feel good, but the real problem is a V-shape in terms of the level of GDP, and that's going to take years to get back, so it'll be years before we get our full employment back. Wow, interesting. Yeah, that's kind of, I think, where some people, as more and more data comes in, kind of thinking, discounting that V-shaped uh, recovery. Carl Weinberg, founder and chief international economist for High Frequency Economics. Thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate your perspective. So, Lisa, kind of an interesting day to the markets here. Kind of very mixed. You've got the NASDAQ up uh, over 1%, but the Dow and S&P just kind of flattish. Dow actually down about half a uh, percent. So it's kind of a strange day in the marketplace. We had that terrible jobs number again. Again, the cumulative 22 million jobs lost over the last several weeks. Uh, that's equal to the total amount of jobs that were created uh, since the financial crisis. So just extraordinary. Yeah. People are just trying to question, how do I position myself in this market? Nobody better to chat about that, Lisa, than Barry Ritholtz. Uh, Ritholtz Capital Management, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and podcast extraordinaire. Barry, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, the jobs number came in ugly. We're going to get some terrible unemployment numbers. We're going to get some terrible GDP numbers. Is it reasonable for this equity market to be looking to the other side? Yes and no. I mean, a lot of what the market is looking at is what's, uh, what's unknown and what sort of probability bet markets can make. Look, we already know that we're in a deep recession, if not a depression. We're probably coming close to the numbers we saw uh, during the Great Depression. I, I, I've seen some, some people say we have 8 or 9 or 10% unemployment. That, that's a way lagging number. We're probably closer to 20 on our way to 30% if this lockdown continues much longer. So the market already understands that. The market is already reflecting that. The question is, as we start to see various things to test, uh, as we start to see various ways of treating the virus, as, as we come to the end of the really, really bad part of not knowing what happens next, 
markets are making up half the losses and then some. I certainly wouldn't be surprised if we saw a retest of those prior lows. And if the news doesn't get any better, we could make new lows. Um, But historically, markets are trying to figure out where is the greater risk, to the upside or to the downside. When you fall 35% in a month, the risk tends to be towards the upside. And that's what the market has been working off the past couple of weeks. That and a $2 trillion stimulus. Right. Uh, Barry, here's what I'm struggling with. It all makes sense. If you're a long-term investor, these companies have value. We will bounce back, blah, blah, blah. I get it. Right. I hear it every day. And, and, I, and I buy it to an extent. And then you have people who are basically saying the entire paradigm is changing. You cannot put the world on hold. People are staying at home, but there's a transformation going on in terms of business, in terms of priorities, in terms of savings and household wealth. And will the other side of this look profoundly different with a different inflationary point of view, with a different tax structure, with a different so, uh, social kind of fiber? Well, there's an easy answer to that and, and, and then the more challenging answer to that. And, and let me take it in that order. The easy answer is pre-existing trends are going to accelerate and things that were already beginning to happen are going to happen much more quickly. And a couple of quick examples. The United States has been over-retailed, much more square footage on a per capita basis for retail stores than, say, the U.K. or Japan uh, or Italy. And so that giant footprint of retail stores were already pressured. This is just going to accelerate that. This is going to accelerate the move towards online. It's going to accelerate the, the move to get rid of uh, giant shopping malls. They're, they're going to have to come up with something beyond here's some stuff, come buy it as a business model. But that's been in place for, that trend has been in existence for two decades. Same with the remote work, the, the virtual work, the work from home. I, I mean, I've been working at home on Fridays over the summer for years and years. And over the past couple of years, it became easy to keep doing that. I wonder how this is going to impact office space. It, it dawned on me that for the for the 10,000 square feet I have in my office, I could probably fit double the number of people if, if people don't need to work 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. You can change that. That's a, something that was already in the works over the past couple of years. That's going to accelerate. And then, the generally speaking, the move towards service economy away from actually physically manufacturing goods, that continues to accelerate. The more difficult question is, what's going to reverse? The fact that we have just-in-time deliveries and just-in-time supply chains, that's going to have to change in some way. The fact that we don't make all sorts of essential equipment, from ventilators to N95 masks to God knows what else, there's going to be a national security question of why isn't this manufactured on the continental United States. It's anybody's guess how that resolves. And and there are going to be a lot of other questions about national security, about trade, about a variety of issues. That's going to have a significant impact on the economy. Figuring out how that plays out is going to be a function of how the virus and its um, uh, management evolves over the next year. And I certainly think, and I don't want to turn this into a political debate, but I think Everybody is very much in agreement that the outcome of the November election is going to have a significant impact on a variety of different things, 
whether it's national medical supply uh, emergency stockpiling or an infrastructure build-out, there's going to be some significant changes relative to this next election. And so trying to figure out where the market's going to go relative to all those variables, it's always a best guess. It's always a probabilistic exercise, but no one really has a clear view as to, to what we're going to look like six months or a year from now. Some trends are obvious. There's a lot of things that are happening below the surface that we really won't know about. Barry Ritholtz, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Barry Ritholtz, founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and of course, the host of Masters of Business on Bloomberg Radio. Sri Natarajan covers all things financials for us here at Bloomberg News and joins us now. Sri, I want to talk a little bit about Morgan Stanley's earnings and sort of how it highlights the trend we're seeing across Wall Street. Trading revenues, beating expectations across the board, definitely plugging a bit of a hole when it comes to loan loss provisions and other areas of the bank. How long can that continue? morning, Lisa. Absolutely. Like the trading revenue part, not just at Morgan Stanley, pretty much every other bank, everyone blew past estimates. It was a phenomenal quarter for all of the Wall Street trading desks. And it was extremely critical that they had a blowout quarter because of the big holes opening up in other parts of the business. Every bank has been taking huge loan loss provision, credit loss provision, mark-to-market losses. And it really was a trading desk that saves the bacon for them. But then the important part is what happens going forward into your question, does, do they have the stamina to continue like this? Well, uh, John Cruzan, Morgan Stanley's CFO, offered us the first clue today that that might not be the case. While volumes are still elevated from what we saw in January and February, they're already down about 20 to 30 percent from the craziness of March is what he's saying. So you could have a situation where the second quarter the protracted lockdown continues. It brings with it all the negatives that you saw in the first quarter without the trading boon accompanying it. And that's a worrying sign for the banks. Shri, what was your some of your takeaways from uh, Eric Schatzer's discussion with Mr. Gorman uh, just now? Look, I, I, I always find uh, Gorman to be a fascinating interview. He's, he's, he's emotional, passionate. And even before the uh, TV interview, when he was on the call with analysts and investors, uh, you could sense that, you know, he was emotional. Obviously, Gorman just recovered from the coronavirus, not a serious case, but still one of the most senior executives on Wall Street uh, to have tested positive for it. He worked through it and uh, he didn't have to be hospitalized. But again, uh, you know, the, he made some critical points. One of, one of the things he said was this is a shock to the global economic system that we haven't seen since the Great Depression, not since the financial crisis of 2008, since the Great Depression. You cannot model this. He was he was clear about that early on. He said, we're not going to be in a position to meet our targets. Any CEO who says that they are going to be able to meet their short-term targets is living on a different planet. Is that a subtle dig at Goldman Sachs who came out yesterday and said, you know, we're not changing our medium-term targets? Maybe, maybe not. I guess the distinction there is between short-term and medium-term. But it does highlight, and really what Gorman was saying in the interview with Eric, also highlighted that we are entering a period of high uncertainty. It's completely unclear to everyone from, from the layperson to the folks running these big banks as to how this will pan out. And that is why you're hearing everyone taking on a conservative posture as we move ahead. 
All right. So since you brought it up, let's talk about the rivalship, the rivalry between uh, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. Who won this quarter? Yeah, I think, uh, to be honest, both of them in the same boat. Uh, Again, what holds Goldman and Morgan Stanley apart from the rest of the industry? And I think that's the comparison we should be making, Goldman and Morgan Stanley versus uh, their other big banks, the JPM City, B of A, uh, Wells, is they don't have that same hefty commercial loan book, the consumer loan exposure like those banks. So where you were seeing on the one hand, $8 billion loan loss provision, $4 billion, $4 billion, $5 billion. Uh, these guys had a much smaller figure, a much more manageable figure because they don't have that kind of exposure. So they were insulated from it. Their trading desks, which are really top of the line, the best on the street, really outperformed and really did well. The real question is, if that slows down and you don't have any of the boons from the other side, it, it, it's going to be a troubling period uh, for the banks. And I don't think it's going to be one where you will necessarily see a few separating themselves from the others. I think they all uh, ride the same boat going forward. So, Shri, coming into this crisis, the I think the, uh, the accepted wisdom was that the banks are in a much better place financially and from a balance sheet perspective. Okay, I get that, but this is a totally different type of animal we're dealing with in terms of the decline in, in the global economy. Is that still the feeling that you heard on these conference calls from the CEOs that they feel confident in their balance sheets? Pretty much. Uh, the caveat to that is uh, you could probably go back to early 2008, late 2007, and I don't think you would have found a CEO on Wall Street who would have said, we're really concerned about the state of our balance sheet. They were they were confident back then also. But the reality is, and when you talk to analysts and the folks doing the numbers, as things stand, banks do seem to be in a much better position. They are really well capitalized compared to 10 years ago, and the feeling is the risk might have shifted elsewhere. Not that the risks have disappeared, but they might have shifted outside the banking system. The other thing to keep in mind is what that uh, this period of heightened volatility and this crisis apart from, say, the 2008 crisis was, it took a good amount of time for the government to act. It took a good amount of time for the Fed to intervene. It's been very different this time around. The Fed, the government, everyone has jumped in right from the get-go. And that has also given confidence to folks that this isn't a systemic issue from from a point of view of what will happen to the banks. But that doesn't take away from the fact that there is still great economic uncertainty. There is a real crisis brewing out there. And ultimately, the health of the bank is intricately tied to the health of the broader economy. So if that doesn't recover, you will have to worry about banks at some point. Shadar Natarajan, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg Finance reporter joining us on Morgan Stanley Earnings. There is an incredible swell of joblessness that defies all historical precedent. 22 million American jobs lost in four weeks, wiping out a decade of gains. Meanwhile, we've got federal uh, governments around the world pumping trillions of dollars into the economy. What are we looking at here in terms of money and pricing going forward? Stagflation, deflation, inflation. Joining us now, Vincent Deluard, global macro strategist at INTLFC. Stone, uh, based in San Francisco, joining us now. Vincent, when you take a look at the job losses, you take a look at the unprecedented stimulus packages being pumped into the economy to keep it afloat during this period. What are we looking at in terms of price increases going forward? Well, um, hi, Uh, good to be here. Uh, For the moment, 
it's almost impossible to tell. I mean, the CPI is a, a basket of goods which and goods and services which most of the country cannot buy right now, and presumably there will be some, some restriction as to what can be bought in, in the near future. So the the near-term inflation picture is, is really anyone's guess. Uh, you know, you certainly will have a lot of impact from, from the collapse of oil prices, and, and we could indeed get, you know, a couple of months of, of negative CPI readings. However, over the medium to long term, I think what we are witnessing today is really planting the seeds uh, for what I would expect to be a decade of stagflation. What is a decade of stagflation? All right, define for our audience your view of st- what is stagflation and what would cause it to be such a long-term phenomenon in this economy. Well, so, you know, stagflation is literally economic stagnation or, let's say, below average growth, uh, and at the same time, uh, rapid uh, increase in price. I mean, that's that was a condition that we saw in, in the 70s in the U.S. Uh, and in um, many um, um, throughout the 20th century in, in many parts of Latin America, uh, parts of Europe in the 1930s. Uh, so below economic growth, I think, is, is something that's increasingly getting obvious that we, we're not going to get um, a very uh, rapid V-shaped recovery. I mean, even in the markets that are indeed coming out of this, you know, nothing has come back to normal. Uh, some consumption pattern have changed, investment has changed, uh, usually, usually for the worse. I mean, we also have to deal with the consequences of the, the bailouts that we uh, so um, casually made. I mean, if anything, the experience in Europe shows that there's no such thing as an emergency lending program. Uh, so that's on the real economy side. And then on the monetary economy, I mean, we have a, a level of, of monetary and fiscal accommodation that simply the world hasn't seen before. Um, right now, it doesn't matter because the velocity of money is deeper. People are locked at home. But as soon as the economy reopens, it's really any anyone guess where it can go. And it seems to me that uh, the sole focus on deflation is, is very misplaced. Let's talk about what we mean when we say stagflation, because I'm looking at your report, and typically stagflation means rising prices of the things you need to buy and wages not necessarily keeping pace and basically consumption uh, remaining flat or declining and just sort of the global energy of business just sort of remaining at a stall speed. Is that a bad thing? And is that an accurate reflection of what you're talking about with stagflation? Right. I mean, generally, uh, well, stagflation is, is not a good environment for um, the owners of, of capital and, and assets. I mean, it's it's your worst outcome. It means that, you know, your stocks are not doing so great because uh, intre- uh, inflation is high, margins compress, uh, growth is not that great, at least in real term, and, and your bonds uh, really uh, get hit the worst. I mean, that's what happened in the 70s. I mean, savage bear markets for equities, they went nowhere for a decade, and then um, really devastation in the bond market. And also usually see is uh, the correlation between stocks and bond turning from negative as it is today to, to positive. Um, I, I tend to be a little more uh, optimistic about the real economy. Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, it you know, some period of high inflation could be uh, or real price inflation, at least, and, and deflation of the asset price uh, could be what's needed to solve the, the strong generational imbalances that we are seeing in the U.S. I think there is a, a huge generational problem that's hiding uh, today um, between the young who is who are mostly poor and who are bearing the, the cost of the lockdowns and the older generation that... Um, 
basically owns all of the assets and, you know, curious way, a decade of inflation could actually help that transfer, which must take place. Vincent Deluard, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts and uh, your most recent research report entitled A Crazy But Logical Call for Stagflation. Vincent Deluard, global macro strategist for INTL FC Stone, based in San Francisco. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.